Amen. If your Bibles are open, uh, we're going to start with Luke 16. Uh, we finished the 15th chapter, so I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Uh, starting with verse 1, he also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that his, uh, this man was wasting his goods. So he called him to, and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I am ashamed to beg. I resolve what to do. When I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bills and sit down quickly and write fifty. And he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, uh, that when they fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is also unjust in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you the true riches? Commit to your trust the true riches. And if you have not been faithful in, another, in what is another man's, who will give to you what is his own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And Lord, we just ask again this morning, as you've been with us through worship, you've been with us this morning through prayer prior to the service, Lord, you would now be with us and speak to us and speak by your Spirit through your Word your word, Lord, is what we need. We need to hear from you, and we pray, Jesus, that they, uh, all those that are here would not hear from me, but we would each collectively hear from you. In your name we pray. Amen. This 16th chapter, and you'll see this uh, when we go through verses uh, 14 through 31, we're just going to cover this first section, but if you were to divide the 16th chapter up into three sections, most of your Bibles probably do have it divided. If you look in uh, the text. Most of your Bibles probably have the 16th chapter divided into three sections. Occasionally, I'll divide up the teaching slightly different than it may be divided in your Bibles, but most of my um, surmising will be divided into three sections. And if you divide it up in uh, three sections, each one of the sections here, Jesus teaches uh, something that deals in some way with money. All three sections, Jesus teaches something that has directly to do with money. Uh, and when I speak of money, I'm speaking of our natural, our fleshly attraction to money. We all have it. We all have a natural, natural attraction in some level because of our sin nature to money, not money in and of itself. Money, we understand that money's paper. We understand that it's uh, zeros and ones in a computer. It's, uh, it's a piece of metal, whatever it is. But our attraction to it not as a tool for the kingdom of God, but as a source, as a source of happiness, security, and fulfillment. This is the, this is the direction Jesus is pointed in when he's looking at money and in speaking of it in chapter 16, he's really addressing uh, the attraction we have to money and the security 
that we feel we get from money. And so Jesus spoke in his earthly ministry a good deal about money. And with good reason, because money uh, is on our minds a lot. Uh, people uh, think a lot about, do I have enough to pay the bills? Uh, am I going to have enough for the future? And do I have enough for this? How about for vacation? How about my wants? We really want this. Now my neighbor's got a new car. What about our car? And so money is constantly, and Satan constantly drives the worry and the fears. And so Jesus is going to speak often in his ministry because money is something that can be used for good, but boy, is it a stumbling block and a hindrance as well. And I've titled our uh, time in God's Word this morning, Challenged by Christ. Challenged by Christ. You know, you can be challenged by somebody in your life. Uh, you can challenge other people, but no one will challenge us in the universe like Jesus Christ. He will challenge us. He knows exactly what we really think. We can, people say, you know, how are you doing today? You know, people say, I'm doing great. Jesus said, no, you're not. I see inside your mind and your heart. Uh, that's a great answer, and, and I'm, it's polite, but the Lord, now, that doesn't mean we should go around being a wet blanket on everybody. I'm doing miserable. I want to tell you every bad thing that's going on in my life. That, but the Lord knows the heart, and he knows our heart and how we're feeling. He knows our heart and how we're actually doing, and he certainly knows our heart as it relates to money or trusting in it or trusting in things or trusting in possessions. And so we'll look this morning at five things from the text, I'll just read, uh, I'll give you the headings as we go through. But I want to start verse, uh, first with verses 1 and 2. If you're taking note, I call this revealed. Uh, revealed. Uh, so this man uh, is exposed what he's actually been doing. And it says that uh, there was a certain rich man. So this uh, rich man has a steward. And this steward has uh, responsibility for his uh, property, his finances, his portfolio, if you will, all of his resources. Uh, the word steward in the Greek, oikonomos, that means the manager of a household or of household affairs. It also means superintendent. Uh, this, was, this could be a freeborn person in the ancient times or as was typically, typically, typically the case, a slave-born person who had been given a high-level responsibility. They had become, uh, they'd come to the place that they had high favor, and then they were given this kind of responsibility to kind of manage all the affairs. They would be head of the house. They would be entrusted uh, the management affairs of all the receipts, all the expenditures. They could also be in charge of personnel. Uh, in the Old Testament, remember Joseph worked for Potiphar? Uh, Joseph was given the full entrustment of everything Potiphar had. Remember, he got railroaded by Potiphar's wife. Uh, but before that, it's a good picture of what a steward is. Uh, Joseph managed all the affairs uh, for Potiphar. And so you had these, in ancient times, a uh, wealthy individual would kind of have what effectively was your vice president, you run everything, you just keep me up to date on how things are doing. But you put full trust in this individual that they would not waste your time, waste your things, or defraud you. And so it comes to his attention. He says uh, that uh, calls the servant to, uh, calls the steward to him and says, I, I hear that there's things going on. You're wasting, you're squandering uh, that which I have given you uh, responsibility over. And we as believers, uh, we have to understand too that we're called as stewards. The Bible tells us explicitly uh, that we are stewards of the manifold grace of God and we've been given salvation 
to be faithful stewards of. Now, we can't, we can't earn our salvation. Uh, we can't even keep our salvation. We are given stewards to walk in our salvation. Does that make sense? And we're not earning it. Jesus holds us, not the other way around. But at the same token, by the same token, we are called uh, to walk in accordance with his will. So that's being a steward of the salvation we've been given. We're to be stewards of the gospel. We're to be sharing the gospel with other people. We weren't given the gospel, as Jesus said, to hide it under a bushel, right? No man takes a lamp, lights it, and then puts it under the bed, Jesus said. We're, to be, we're given the gospel as stewards. Uh, unlike many things in this world, most people are considered good stewards when they get something and they kind of hoard it and keep it. Jesus said, no, no, when I give you the gospel, a good steward will keep giving it out, keep casting the bread among the waters, and it'll come back to us uh, in new souls and lives change. We're to be stewards of the gifts and the talents we've been given. Uh, if you have spiritual gifts, if you have abilities, you know, we had the, the VBS this week and, um, you know, the, the set design, those of you that are creative, uh, the, the building was so decorated, uh, just, just using the gifts and talents you've been given for the glory of the Lord and the kids that uh, came in and the parents that were impacted, all of that is using what we've been given as good stewards and all this is for the glory of Christ and for his kingdom. We only have three things essentially, I mentioned all the time, uh, that we can be stewards of. We have time, we have talent, and we have treasure. Some people have less treasure, but still we're called to be a good steward of what we have been given. We all have the same amount of time. We all have seven days and 24 hours in every day. Everybody has the same amount of time. We don't all have the same amount of talents. Some people are far more talented than me. Some people are far more talented than you. I know that's hard to believe, but there are people out there that are more talented than any of us in this room. And yet we all have the same amount of time, but we have varying degrees of treasure. Some people are quite wealthy, some people are not, but the Lord wants us to be faithful stewards of these things. Now, it says in the text here that, again, he was wasting his master's goods. Uh, this is in the Greek word, dioscorpizo, dioscorpizo, wasting. It means to squander. Uh, there's a number of ways that you could waste if you were a manager. Uh, you could actually, uh, good, a good picture of this is what happens in Washington, D.C. a lot with our elected officials, right? Uh, they're given, I love when uh, some of them, after you see career politicians, and they still call themselves public servants, right? Uh, but nevertheless, they're to be servants, and then you find out that uh, you know, this agency, some agency, has just spent $1.5 million in Waikiki, and everybody there is uh, having a good time, and you're wondering, well, was that really a good use of $1.5 million? And you, feel, you realize all the things that are happening. It's squandering something that doesn't belong to you. Uh, when you're a steward, it's not really your stuff. You're managing it on behalf of someone else. So everything God's given us, what's in your bank account really doesn't belong to you either. It belongs to God. The minutes on your watch don't really belong to you or me. They belong to who? God. The gifts and talents that he could take away as quickly as he gave them belong to who? To God. To waste them or to squander them or to use them for our own glory is something that God says, no, no, no. That's not, that's not the way my sons and daughters will be. So Jesus is pointing to the outside world and saying, here's a, here's a case where someone was given a responsibility, but they wasted it. They squandered it. They started to believe it belonged to them, and they could do with it any way they want. We are not the lords of our own lives. Jesus is the Lord of our life. 
And so he's called into account, the steward's called into account, and once he realizes, uh, he says, you're going to give an account of your stewardship, you can no longer be steward. You will be removed from your post. You will not have this responsibility anymore. You won't be managing my money, my personnel, my finances, my expenditures. You're going to have to find another way to live or to earn a living. And so he begins to worry about his future. He scrambles in his mind to figure out how will he live, where will he live, how will he make ends meet, how is he going to take care of himself, how is he going to provide for his needs. Which brings us to verses 3 through 7, if you're taking notes. Resolved. He becomes resolved in what he's going to do. If you're taking notes under resolved. Notice what he doesn't do. It says, then the steward says within himself, what shall I do? My master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot, beg, I cannot dig, and I am ashamed to beg. Notice what he doesn't do. He does not ask for mercy. When you and I fail, we need to ask for mercy. Amen? And we're going to fail, and we're going to blow it, and we're going to be unfaithful stewards at times. The first thing we need to do is ask the Lord, Lord, forgive me. I didn't, I didn't handle this well. Ask for mercy. And, you know, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And praise the Lord that he does. But this man doesn't ask for mercy. He doesn't ask to be given a second chance. We have no idea if the master would have given him that or not. They could have been really tight. He might have just been waiting to see, will he ask for forgiveness? Will he admit fault? Those of you that are managers, those of you that have responsibility, those of you that are parents, don't you like it when someone just admits fault instead of making every excuse under the sun? When someone just flat out says, I've learned, the older I've gotten, I've learned that you can actually really recover well when you just simply, and it has to be sincere. People know insincere apology. I'm sorry about that. But if you really mean it, and there's really going to be a change, people generally will respond pretty well to that. Not always. There's going to be some people out there, but God is not like some people either. God really, we saw the previous chapter was who? the parable of the prodigal. He squandered his dad's inheritance, and what did God do? He forgave him of it. So we know God is very forgiving, and we can mess up, and we can actually you know, really come to a place that we deserve to be removed from our post. Jesus writes a letter to churches, if they didn't repent, he was going to remove their lampstand, right? Why? Because they had been very unfaithful stewards, but he was willing to forgive them and kind of level the account, and put them back on the right path. And he'll do that for us as well. But he becomes resolved not to ask for mercy, and he comes up with a different plan. Understand, though, that the whole world, everyone in America, everyone in Chesterfield County, the whole world has defrauded the master and sovereign Lord of the universe and the Lord of our souls. Everyone has defrauded the Lord. Yet, because people often can't see past the very brief time on earth, that our life is a vapor, rather than asking for forgiveness and finding rest in God, many will work feverishly to find security, to find peace, to find protection, to find happiness, even if that means entering into further sin and more dishonesty to take care of number one. This man didn't have a fear of the Lord. What did he have a fear of? He had a fear about his future. He had a fear about the temporal. He had a fear about how am I going to make it? How am I going to survive? He didn't have a fear for the Lord. Joseph, I'd already mentioned, Joseph was, a, Joseph was a faithful steward. He didn't enter into a relationship with Potiphar's wife 
because he had a fear of the Lord. He said, how can I sin against the Lord? It cost him being thrown in jail. Sometimes the fear of the Lord will cost us something. But it's better to fear the Lord. You either fear the Lord or you'll fear everything else. It's been well said. But he has a fear of the future. His lifestyle, his provisions, the survival of the remainder of his life. We don't know how old he was. I, I don't think he was a young man. He said he couldn't dig. And it's, it's kind of a... It's kind of a uh, metaphor here that he couldn't do certain hard labor, physical labor. How much of his life is uncertain here, Jesus doesn't say in this parable, but we know that uh, he doesn't ask for forgiveness, he starts to come up with a plan. And he reasons that he's probably too old for hard labor, he doesn't want to beg, how many of you would really want to beg? I wouldn't either, I don't want to be on the side of the road, hold one of those signs. I can understand why he wouldn't want to beg. But again, it's better to beg God for mercy than to beg man. And it's also better just to say, Lord, what can you do to help me as I return to you? But he doesn't do that. He reasons that he's too old, comes up with a plan of his own. And, and kind of his thinking might be something like this. And remember, this is a parable, so we don't know exactly all the details. But his, parent, his thinking might be something like this. Well, I've already defrauded my master. And I'm going to be fired anyway, so I might as well double down on defraud and make sure that I am taken care of. Now, you've probably seen this in the workplace at times, haven't you? I know I did. When I was, uh, when I was in the uh, business world, I remember I uh, uh, had this one colleague that um, felt like you know, he had deserved something, so he just put extra gas mileage in, you know, I'll get that hundred back. I'll get that 100 back. Just put a little extra mileage in there. People will take care of themselves to the extent they believe it's right for them. I've earned this. I have it coming to me. So he doubles down on defraud. His, uh, his sharp, sharp but sinful mind, his sharp but sinful mind comes with a plan that will endear him to the community. Great plan. He'll start by writing down people's debt. So he immediately... Uh, what he's hoping is that they will see that he's helped them out and then they will be helping him out when he's removed from his post. Because apparently he hasn't yet been removed. He's told he will be removed from his post. So he still has, uh, he still has access to the computer files, access to the books. It's like, you know, they're over at Wells Fargo. They haven't been let go, but uh, calling everybody up. I've just, I've just halved your mortgage. You okay with that? I may need a room in your house, Right? Follow-up comment, right? I may be needing use of your car. Uh, I may uh, uh, need uh, some grocery help and things like that. But remember, who wrote your mortgage in half? Who dropped 20% off your bills? And all these kind of things. So he starts uh, writing down bills. And by the way, very little of what the world ever does is actually selfless. There's a whole lot of self-interest out there, isn't there? There's a whole lot of strings attached. He does these nice things, but they're not really his things to be doing with them anyway, but it's looking out again for number one. He's resolved what he's going to do, and he comes up with this plan. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you're taking notes uh, under reproved, I've titled verses 8 and 9, reproved. And so the master, the, uh, the master commended, this is an odd uh, verse here when you first look at it. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. 
The sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Shrewd, uh, it means intelligent. Uh, intelligent can be used, intelligence can be used for good. Intelligence can be used for bad. We would all agree that there's there some very intelligent people out there that are not using their intelligence for good. Uh, we've got cyber terrorists who are geniuses. Uh, breaking code and getting into the Defense Department, you know, uh, all kinds of things. There's a lot of intellect that's not used for good. But the master, uh, this rich master, he recognized the steward did some quick, and I would say, albeit wrong, it's still strategic thinking. Does that make sense? It still was strategic. It was, I mean, you can have bad, you can have evil strategic plans, but they can still be strategic. Uh, he does some quick and strategic thinking and in how he could insulate himself from personal peril. Devious, yes. We would all agree that when you're writing down the bills, when it's not really your money you're writing down, it's somebody else's, that's a devious plan. But to add to his prior wastefulness, his prior squandering, he's willing to do this to take care of himself. And so the, the master recognized, though, although this is dishonest, it's pretty resourceful. It's pretty quick thinking. It's fairly, uh, you know, as far as thinking outside the box. Quickly comes up with a plan. I know how I can make sure that I'll have a place to stay and people will be uh, there to take care of me. I'm too old to take care of myself or uh, physically unable, whatever the case may be, to do hard labor. I don't want to be on the streets begging. I've never lived that way before. I've always, uh, I've always shopped at the Gap. I don't want to start shopping somewhere else or whatever it may be. And so this is what I'm going to come up with. Some people are brilliant at avoiding work. I mean, just brilliant at it. Some people are genius in finding loopholes. Some are extremely sophisticated in stealing and defrauding. Others are just very stealth and doing exactly what suits themselves. And you're, and you're like Teflon. How do you always get away with stuff? Right? You ever meet people like that? You're like, how do you always get away with it? And they're very proud of it. Well, I'm, I'm smarter than you, right? <laughs> I, I, I figured this out. And then when something comes to light in any of these areas, you think to yourself, you ever had this thought? You say, wow, if they'd only use that type of intellect for good. You ever had that thought when you look at someone? If they'd only use that kind of intellect for good. We've all seen this. We've seen it in movies. It's actually a theme in many movies. If you're a parent, you've probably had a similar observation with your children. It goes something like this. You ever remember watching your two-year-old directly defy you, and then you end up laughing to yourself saying, that's direct obedience, but that's pretty smart. <laughs> you ever done that as a parent? You're like, you told them not get out of the crib, and somehow they figured a way to unlock the door by climbing over something. You're like, how did they figure that? They're only like 18 months old. And then you say, well, they must have got that intellect from me, so uh, <laughs> hopefully I'll steer them in the right direction. When I was in business, we'd do annual business planning for a fiscal year. Uh, we'd have goals and financial metrics, budgets, growth targets. And a common phrase that was uh, in the company that I was at, a common phrase to ensure success was always, plan the work, work the plan. Plan the work, work the plan. And some of you may use the same uh, terminology. And I, I still use some of those same principles uh, in general planning, both home-related, church-related projects. We've got, obviously, a 
significant project coming up with moving. And those things aren't, those aren't bad. God wants us to use our mind in a good way. But Jesus is making the observation here. Um, he's not commending a dishonest scheme. When it says, uh, it says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Now this is Jesus making the commentary on, on the parable that he himself gave. He's not commending, he's not commending a dis- dishonest scheme. What he is saying is that those in this world that are unsaved are often more laser-focused on securing and improving their future than those that are saved and their dedication to the kingdom of God and the gospel. Did you hear that? What Jesus is saying, he's making the observation that the unsaved world is often far more laser-focused, committed, nothing stops them from pursuing their future and achieving their goals more than Christians are in achieving God's goals. And he's saying that ought not be. That's why he's challenging the hearers. He's challenging you and me. It's striking that people often think more about the future, the retirement years, maybe even someday traveling the world with no financial cares, but almost give no thought whatsoever to eternity. You ever had this? You talk to someone, they tell you all the things they're going to do when they're 50, 60, 70, do this, like, what happens after that? What happens if you die before then? Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? That's forever. Keeps on going. You'll see people put in countless hours to start and build a small business. People coming from other countries, this country, as most of our uh, ancestors did, have for decades started restaurants and businesses where you've seen it, people that work seven days a week. I've, I've met small business owners uh, that are tireless. I mean, that will work every day of the week, hardly get enough time for sleep, and de- start back the very next day. Why? Well, they do this to ensure that their kids will someday go to college or someday they'll have financial help. CNBC has a show coming out called Blue Collar Millionaires. I don't know if anyone's seen an advertisement for it. And this country has proven again and again, if you're willing to work extremely hard, if you're dedicated, if you're undeterred, college or no college, super smart or not super smart, Blue collar or white collar, you can achieve the American dream. Many people have done it. But Jesus is not impressed. He said, what what would it profit if you gain the entire world and lose your own what? Soul. God's not impressed by that. People are impressed by that. And they get some measure of security by it. It's not uncommon to see people wanting to advance their career. I used to see it all when when I worked in the Fortune 500 world. It's not uncommon to see people wanting to advance their career and earning potential by juggling a demanding full-time job, working on NBA, still keeping their Little League coaching commitment, head up the United Way campaign, serve on a local board, train for a marathon, get season tickets and keep them so you're socially connected, spend time career mentoring and being mentored, and in between, pick up the kids from school, daycare, and activities. I knew lots of people like that, that did everything and more on that list. And it's no wonder they have zero time for God 
and no concern for his concerns. Then you'll have someone who's been saved for 10 years, and if they're asked, hey, why don't you help with something like children's ministry, they'll say, sorry, I don't have time. How is the unsaved guy or gal able to manage that incredible list and can do it all? Now, inside they might be dying of stress or (laughs) heart failures, the things that aren't showing, but nevertheless, at least exteriorly, the bank account's getting bigger, they're climbing the ladder, they're getting a lot of pats on the back and everything else. Everything seems to be cruising along. They find time for all that, and then, you know, a born-again believer can't say, oh, I, I can't help with VBS. I don't have time for something like that. Christian, does the world have, this is a question for all of us, does the world have more drive and dedication to that which will most assuredly fade and fail than we do to that which brings life, hope, salvation, and eternal life? Does the world, Jesus is making the question. It's not my question. It's his. He's saying, I see more shrewd dedication in their commitment to taking care of themselves and reaching whatever level they want than I see often in the sons of light, those that are saved. Are we guilty of trusting in ourselves and our efforts rather than giving our lives to Christ and letting him take care of our security? You, you know, we can trust him with our time, talent, and treasure. You believe that? We can say it with our mouths, but do we say it with our lives? We can trust him with our security. Jesus mentions here the word mammon. Uh, Some of your Bibles may say wealth, may say riches, but uh, if you have the New King James, which I'm reading from, it says mammon. Uh, The word mammon is Aramaic in origin. It's referring to wealth or riches. The connotation is not just wealth and riches. Get this. The connotation is confidence in wealth and riches. Confidence and wealth and riches. You can have all the confidence. I, I, I used to have a fantastic health plan. Now I have a, a not-so-great health plan that I pay way more from by being the sole employee of Calvary Chapel of Richmond. I used to have a Cadillac plan. But it dawned on me the other day, I, so, I still sometimes will meet with former colleagues and stuff, and I realize they have a great health plan, but no one can give them health. They can have all the health plan and actually no health. No mental health or physical health at times. Stressed out, worried, body breaking down in certain areas that are because the world will, everyone is a disposable item to the world. Everyone. No matter who you can think of on planet Earth, if they die today, the world won't miss a beat. True? I don't care who it is. Say, the world could never live without so-and-so. It won't even matter in 24 hours. Now, I don't say that callously. I'm saying that is what the world is, a machine that just moves forward. And Jesus doesn't treat us that way. But the connotation is confidence and riches. And look at verse 9. When you read verse 9 at first, you might kind of like, what does this mean? Let me read it to you exactly how it says from the New King James And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into into an everlasting home. Who is they? Well, that's the people all around you. Go ahead, Jesus, go ahead, go right ahead. Live for money, and when it fails, let them receive you into an everlasting kingdom. What's he saying here? He's underscoring the absurdity on relying on money. 
Jesus is, it's almost like a tongue-in-cheek statement, if you will. It's an absurd thing. Jesus says, do you really believe that those people around you that are also trusting in money have the, within their power to receive you into an everlasting kingdom? Well, they don't. They can't even keep their own house from molding or rusting or breaking down, no matter how nice it is. He's the only one that can ensure us an everlasting home where nothing, no rust, no rust, no moth, nothing can corrupt. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. You're taking notes. I titled this responsible. Verses 10 through 12. He who is faithful in what is least faithful is faithful. Uh, who is, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. It says in verse 11, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, uh, unrighteous mammon here doesn't necessarily mean wrong or wicked. It just means temporal. Does that make sense? Just kind of something that it's not going to last. Uh, it's very, very temporary. It appears for what, you know, stock market can be up here. Do you realize how many world events could, could drop the stock market? We could start naming them and sit here all day. The all, it's only by the grace of God all of them haven't happened, much less two or three of them. So anything, uh, that's what he's saying, is that, that mammon, which is very temporal, very fading, very much can fly away, as the Proverbs said, like a bird. If you're going to trust in those things, who's going to commit to you true riches? Understand that money itself, it isn't evil or an issue. Money itself is not evil or an issue. All of us here have some money, presumably, <laughs> but varying degrees. Money is a necessary tool. I think we'd all agree money is a necessary tool in the entire world for payment or transfer of exchange of goods, services, time, talent, skills, investment, effort. Money is the transfer of those things. You're buying someone's brain at times. Hey, I need your help because you know how to do this and I don't. You're buying someone's effort sometime. You're buying something someone else already manufactured and made. So it's, it's an exchange and there's nothing wrong with it. The Bible has good things to say about money, but it also talks about how it can be a real hindrance. Money to the world, though, is huge. It means everything to the world. They name magazines after it, right? Fortune, money. It, it just means a lot to the world. It means status. If you have a lot of it, you are somebody. Even if you, even if you have no moral fiber whatsoever. I'm not even going to enter the political realm on that. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> means. Ability. People have confidence in money. The world, money means a lot to the world. It means so much that the Bible says the root of many evils, not all evils, but many evils. We've seen lately with this stuff with Planned Parenthood. Money's not the only source of their problems, but it's a big piece of the chunk, isn't it? People will do anything. They lose all moral compass when money's involved. If, it can, if they can uh, actually have more causes people to sin, and people effectively sell their souls to get money. True? People will sell their souls. I mean, I've, I've watched videos where people talk about, yeah, I, I was willing to give up anything to have more money. Money to God, though, in one respect, is a small thing. It's an important thing, but yet to God, in one respect, it's a very small thing. It's not nearly as valuable as the gifts that God gives that are spiritual, starting with salvation. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness. These things can't be bought with money. They're bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Someone who's young in the faith, even if you're very young in the faith, if they desire to serve and please the Lord, should very early in their Christian walk be cultivating a proper handling and understanding of money. Remember, money's not a big thing to God, but it's a big stumbling block to mankind. Those who love the Lord can be trusted with money. Jesus, it's just a little thing, but if you can't be trusted with something as little as flimsy as paper money, you can't be trusted with big things like people's lives, souls, counsel, things that really matter. Money shouldn't have a gravitational pull on those of us who are saved, but it still can, can it? It shouldn't, but it still can. People that can be trusted with it will see money as something that is to be used for the Lord and His glory, not used for our own greedy gain. and More status, and more under, you know, people thinking more highly of us. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications both elders and deacons, elders and deacons, it says they cannot be greedy for money. The last thing you want is someone who loves money dealing with the money that people give to the church. That's the last thing you want is someone who is in love with that. And he talks about if you can't be committed with something that is so fading, so failing as temporary as money, then how could you possibly be entrusted with true riches? How could you comfort someone who's dying? You couldn't. How could you really help someone who has marital problems? How could you truly love the unlovable when you're in love with money? True riches. Jesus only entrusts true riches. It reminds me in the book of Acts. Remember in the book of Acts, um, you had Simon the sorcerer? He was amazed by the power of the apostles. The apostles had what for money? Zilcho. Peter said, silver and gold I don't really have. God's given me some pretty unique abilities. I heal people. Now, he, he, he said in, he had no ability to heal people, but again, the Holy Spirit would come upon him, and because God was flowing through his life, he actually was used to bring people things that all the money in the world, doctors couldn't heal someone, the apostles would actually come in, pray over someone, and they were healed. But Peter's like, I don't have any money, but rise and walk. The guy's like, are you kidding me? I'd take that over money. But he, the, the, uh, Simon the sorcerer was impressed by the early church's power and the fact that they had riches that seemed to come spiritually from God, and of course, that they did. Peter said, your money perished with you. You think you can buy it? He tried to buy it. He was impressed by it. But God only entrusts the true riches, the spiritual riches, the, the uh, Holy Spirit to speak into people's lives, the, uh, to bring the gospel with power, these true riches are given to those of us who love the Lord. They're not in love with the temporary. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.4, uh, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's the true riches of our Christian walk, and there's the true riches that are stored up in heaven, and both are important. And I want to close with verse 13. If you're taking notes, I've titled verse, uh, this fifth section here, Rooted. Jesus makes the statement, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is you cannot serve God and have a confidence in riches, have a confidence in wealth. Now, this is not you cannot serve God as well. He says you just can't serve God, period. If we have a love for riches or of confidence, then we need to, we need to get at the altar and get it out of our lives. It's okay to have something, but not it to have us. Amen? Can't serve two masters, one or the other. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. If the seed, which is us, is willing to go into the ground and die, we can produce a lot of godly fruit. An investment that God will get his investment on our lives when we die to ourselves. It's only in dying to ourselves that we become rooted in the life of Christ. When we're rooted in the life of Christ, nothing but our relationship with him satisfies our soul. Does that make sense? Nothing else will satisfy the soul when we're rooted in Christ. The fact is, the fact is whether anyone has a relationship with Christ or not, nothing will ever satisfy them either but a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Serve me, follow me, love me, and you'll never thirst again. Didn't he say that? Come unto me, all you the thirst, and you'll never thirst again. Not for the things that the world's thirsting. The reason why they're in love with all these things is they're thirsting for something that, that will never quench their thirst. Jesus said, you drink of this well, you'll thirst again. Remember the woman at the well? He said, you'll thirst again. You drink with the water I give, you'll never thirst again. Money and the endless parade of catalogs, commercials. Anyone get a lot of catalogs coming in the mail? Like, wow, that looks nice. It's way better than our couch. Ours is 12 years old. Oh, but that's... 1800, so into the trash it goes, right? Endless parade of catalogs, commercials, advertisement, infomercials, TV shows, and employers will say this, serve me, follow me, dedicate your time and focus on me until you're finally fulfilled. And that carrot keeps dangling, and you get near it, and it pulls out again, and out again, keeps going down the line. Life flies by, and it never happens. Poof. End of life. Back in 1989, you 80s 80s people will remember this. I I finished high school in 87, but back in 89, those of you that like the 80s, what a great decade. (laughs) In some ways, anyway. Um, There was a group named Callaway. Remember them? They released an album uh, that the following year in 90 had a song. It went all the way to number two on the Billboard 100. The song was titled, I Want to Be Rich. And I apologize if this song is in your head the rest of the day. I'm not going to sing it, but anyway, here's the lyrics. You see, I want money, lots and lots of money. I want the pie in the sky. Remember these lyrics? I want lots and lots of money, so don't be asking me why. I want to be rich. And here's the line, for a little love, peace, and happiness. You know... People, the music industry and Hollywood, they're the poets of our day, if you will. They actually convey what is really the heart of people. 
what they're really looking for, what they're longing for, what they want. And I could have pulled songs from U2, Madonna, the Rolling Stones, you name it, that convey the same, same thought process. We may not be in love with money itself, but we may very well be in love with what money provides or what we think it provides, love, peace, and happiness. And I would add security, confidence, status, other things. Remember back in chapter 14 where Jesus proclaimed that we have to forsake all that we're holding on to, right? He said, and bear one's cross that he's given to each of his disciples. If you're a believer and you're a disciple, he's given us a cross to take into this world. We have to follow the death of Christ, take up our cross. We have to die to our affections for the material world. We have to believe what God says, not what our flesh says, and certainly not what Madison Avenue, Hollywood, the music industry, and everybody else says. When we do, here's the good thing. When we listen to what God says and die and go in the ground as that seed, he'll change our affections to his truth, to him, and to eternity. The reason why Jesus said so many of the sons of the world are more dedicated to the sons of God because the sons of God have forgot, like Peter was walking on water when he really believed what Jesus was saying, forgot it and starts sinking because now he's not believing anymore that God is faithful with our time, our talent, and our treasure. Ravi Zacharias said, unless I understand the cross, I cannot understand why my commitment to what is right may, must take precedence over what I prefer. Unless I understand the cross, I cannot understand why my commitment to what is right must take precedence over what I prefer. When what is right takes precedence, God will change our affections. When we live in the light of the cross, we don't look at the world the same way the world looks at the world. We look at it as lost, dying, faded, rusted, and that we actually have what they don't have instead of us trying to chase what we think they have. They should be chasing us down for what we have. This is what the, this is Jesus' challenge. They should be looking at you and saying, why are you so dedicated to the kingdom of God? Instead of you looking at them saying, how can I get what you have? I love when I meet Christians that aren't jealous of the world. They just have such an impact on my life. When I meet people that are like a Sam Nadler, he is not, he could, he'll, he's never going to ask you, what do you do for a living? So he can find out how much you make. By the way, there's people that ask that question sincerely. There's a lot of people that only ask that, reason, they only ask that question for one thing. They want a measure stick. Where do you fit into them? And God doesn't care about those things. C.T. Studd said, there's no safer place for my money than in God's bank. He offers 100-fold interest. Do you know anyone who offers better interest than that? I don't. We have a challenge, and it's not from me. It's from the Lord Jesus Christ. We have something the world should be receiving from us, not us begging for what they have. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your truth. We thank you, Jesus, for your precious blood, which all the money in the world could never accomplish on our behalf, and that's our salvation. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness if we've been less diligent in the work of the gospel than the world is in the work of their own success, security, and provisions. 
But Lord, I also ask, even now, that your spirit would speak, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, isn't ready to meet you in eternity, hasn't been saved by the blood of Jesus, hasn't been changed from the inside out, that you would uh, touch, speak to their heart, and draw them unto you. No man comes to you unless you draw him unto him. Before we close in worship, I just want to ask, last week we had, uh, we, had a, we had a man get saved in the parking lot an hour and a half after the service. Yeah, you can clap for that. And two, actually two of the men that are here in our church, uh, they thought I was gone and uh, they had been witnessing to him. He was in the service just like you are sitting here and he was under conviction, the Lord speaking to him. And, uh, you know, we were getting stuff ready for VBS. An hour and a half later, I go outside, drive away, and I see them talking. This, I walk up and I, I joined in and we ganged up on him. And I'm kidding. Um, uh, you know, and I even told him, I said, look, we're, we're not trying to get, I said, look, you're free to go anytime. We're only spending time with you because, you know, we know eternity matters that much. And uh, he gave his life to Christ and tears running down his face. And that's, what, and that's what we have that money can't buy. We didn't, burn, we didn't earn it. We didn't create it. We just simply share it. We have an unlimited reservoir worth trillions and trillions of dollars, if I could even put it in terms like that, and that's the gospel. And he got saved and gave his life to the Lord. And, but if there's anyone here today and you say, I, wow, I, I don't know what any of this was about, but I know the Lord's speaking to me just want us to bow our heads for just a moment. If you, you're here and say, I, I, I've been trusting in all kinds of things, but I, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I want to give my life to the Lord. I want to be cleansed and forgive my sin. Just stand right where you're at. We do have a public profession. Jesus died publicly on a cross. He just wants to receive you cleanse you, forgive you. Just stand right where you're at. We've had people plenty of times in the past. This wasn't really a salvation message, although there was elements of salvation in the message. It was really a challenge to us as Christians, but if there's anyone here that doesn't know the Lord, we don't want to leave without giving the opportunity. If you say, hey, I want to talk more about this like the gentleman last week, we'll stay with you. We'll stay an hour and a half or two and a half, whatever it takes to answer your questions and show you from the scriptures, not our opinion. My opinion doesn't matter. We'll show you from the scriptures what it means to know the Lord. And then Christian, those of you that are here, I just, uh, as I've been challenged studying this text, I hope you have too, that Jesus has given us something to be a steward with, to be faithful with the faith we've been given, to be faithful with salvation, to be faithful with the gospel. And all of us have blown it. We've been bad stewards at times, probably even this week. But just ask for his forgiveness and say, Lord, I want to be a faithful steward this coming week in sharing Jesus with someone. And not being so uh, bothered that so-and-so has more stuff than I do. Not be so bothered that I don't have something I think I needed five years ago and I still don't have it. Just to trust the Lord and say, you are my great reward to share that with other people. Why don't you stand as we close and worship together?